Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first order with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. Check out the first 12 all-new starships in the collection and discover how to get yours at eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 265, Star Trek Generations. are sticky, the cleanliness is questionable, there are far too many people here. We must be at the movies for this edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. And yes, Ken, you are correct. For the second time in Mission Log's storied history of tackling stories, we're back at the movies. The next generation has met its television end, but we get four weeks in the Cineplex, starting with Star Trek Generations. Ah, yes. Star Trek Generations. The one that makes me... Well, it makes me feel kind of stupid, John. You know, I have a tattoo, right, of the uh, of the art on the warp nacelle from the 1701D. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen it. Looks good. Would have been great if somebody had told me that it exploded. Ooh. Yeah. It's okay, though, because I've also got my... Uh, I've got my data tattoo, so i got that going for me. Oh. Oh. I uh, can... One. Nothing. I've got a feature film-sized batch of trivia coming up, but first... But first, a word from Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. While we have just wrapped the third Star Trek TV series, if you count the cartoons, the seventh Star Trek TV series is on the air, if you count the cartoons. I do, of course, mean Star Trek Discovery. And they have been discovered by Eagle Moss. The makers of tiny starships and great big starships want to give Mission Log listeners a chance to check out the great big discovery ships in the Eagle Moss collection. Tons of ships headed your way. Seven Federation ships, including the Discovery, the Shinzo, and the Europa, and five Klingon ships, like the reimagined Bird of Prey and the Veklar-class Klingon patrol ship. Now, what you'll see when you visit EagleMoss.com slash Discovery Starships are renderings that serve as the basis for the die-cast models themselves. 
painstakingly reproduced, as always, under the supervision of Star Trek expert Ben Robinson. These are officially authorized by CBS Studios. They're about 8 to 10 inches long from front to back, hand-painted, rich in detail, and, of course, each comes with the awesome magazine full of awesome information and the awesome stand upon which to set your awesome ship. So, subscribers will get their first ship, the USS Shinjo NCC-1227, for only $9.95 with free shipping. Additional models, including the iconic USS Discovery NCC-1031, will then ship monthly for the special subscriber price of only $44.95 each, as 20% off the standard retail price, also with free shipping. Now people who want to pick and choose their ships can do that. For that, you go to shop.eaglemoss.com or check your local comic shop. You'll pay about 10 bucks more when you do that, but saving money isn't the only reason to subscribe. Subscribers also get free gifts worth over $100 during their subscription. And of course, you can cancel your subscription at any time. So to subscribe, eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. To buy individually, shop.eaglemoss.com. And a huge thanks to Eaglemoss for sponsoring this week's show. John's got trivia coming up in just a moment, but first I am going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. A short show this week, probably very little trivia, I'm guessing. But I don't read ahead, so I don't know for sure. Uh, Mr. Champion, please, will you not regale us? Uh, You might want to go get a drink. (laughs) (laughs) What makes you think I'm not drinking already? (laughs) Today's movie, Star Trek Generations, was written by Ronald D. Moore and Brannon Braga. The first pass at the story, though, is by Maurice Hurley. That's a name we haven't really discussed in a while. He started with Next Gen way back at the beginning as a producer. Sometime in 1992, Rick Berman had been approached by the studio about making the next Star Trek film, and it was felt like including the original cast would be a good idea. Now, of course, we just talked in our last episode about how Ron and Brannon were also writing the series finale, All Good Things, as they were writing this story. So yes, there was really no break between shutting down production on the next-gen TV series and starting production on this, their first of four movies. Generations was directed by David Carson. His directorial work on Star Trek begins with Next Gen's third season episode, The Enemy, and uh, he directed four total Next Gen episodes. He directs four episodes of Deep Space Nine as well, and this is his only Trek feature film. Let's talk about John Alonzo as DP, Director of Photography. Uh, Now, this is big. I've talked about my love of Marvin Rush and how he reinvented Next Gen on TV. I think his episodes stand out as the best looking. Well, now we have a DP who can really put his own stamp on the TV show moving to the big screen. 
How about a few standouts from his career as a cinematographer? Chinatown, Black Sunday, Scarface, Harold, and Maude, just to name a few. For the movie, Rick Berman gets the producer credit. Now, what I like to do sometimes for our movie episodes, as you may remember, Ken, and listeners, uh, I like to talk about the cost and how it did with its worldwide gross. So this movie cost about $35 million, worldwide gross of about $118 million. By comparison, the last movie we talked about, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, cost just under $30 million, and it grossed about $97 million worldwide. So remember, All Good Things aired in May of 1994, and this movie premiered in November of 1994. That is a super fast turnaround. They had a 50-day shoot. And remember how when we talked about All Good Things being shot in 17 days, which is a little long for TV, but would be a really tight schedule for a small feature. Uh, but then you add in reshoots, which brings us to the deleted scenes. So really, this is the biggest point of trivia because it is not trivial at all. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about some of the standouts here. You have the opening or the abandoned opening, which would have been an orbital skydiving scene. That's how we would have been reintroduced to Kirk. Incidentally, there was an action figure made of Kirk in the skydiving suit. And not only did it not appear in the movie, the description on the packaging is totally wrong. (laughs) They, They actually say that that suit is what he wears when he's saving the Enterprise B from destruction. So hmm. totally wrong there. We'll talk more about the action figures later in the show because there's there's more to it than that. And, you know, my love of Star Trek toys. Um, there is more of the aftermath of the Enterprise D crash, a uh, little bit with Nurse Ogawa in there and uh, just more of the, the mayhem and a bit more of people moving into sickbay. Uh, we have additional footage on the sailing ship Enterprise. A little bit more about that here in a minute. And uh, we have more of Picard in his Nexus hallucination. All of that was shot in Pasadena, by the way. A pretty extensive set and exterior dressing to pull that off. Not to mention, Patrick Stewart was shooting another movie and had let his hair grow out, the hair that he has on the sides of his head. He had a makeup appliance with shorter hair to make the scenes match, which would also bring us to the infamous Kirk death scene. So they had some reshoots in the Nexus. They had to make over Patrick Stewart because he had a little longer hair. And all the principals went out to the Valley of Fire to completely reshoot the end of the movie. Uh, And that sequence was followed by Picard being picked up uh, by Geordi in a shuttle. All this reshooting cost the production about five million bucks. Oh, wow. Okay. So then go back to what you were saying earlier. Cause mm-hmm. you said this like cost 35 million and it made 118. Yep. I don't want to sound like a jerk, but if they had gotten it right the first time, it would have been an even bigger <laughs> win. Yeah. Could have saved a few bucks. Yeah. I don't mean like if they'd gotten it right the first time because redoing things, heck, I think we had to actually restart the beginning of this show earlier. Everything doesn't go. Mm-hmm. And then you multiply what we do by, oh, I don't know, 35 million. Yeah. <laughs> you can certainly uh, <laughs> exactly. see how they might have to do a little bit over again, but still. Can we uh, – let's derail the conversation here for just a moment hmm. uh, because I think it's something worth pointing out. Us? Um, yeah. Why not? 
Here's what's interesting about those reshoots. Um, the original script and the way, way it was originally filmed and put together had uh, Sauron shooting Kirk in the back. Hmm. And it, it was a, a fight scene that just ended like that. And, and it really was a bummer for the test audiences that they showed it to. So Sherry Lansing, who was the head of the studio at the time, um, screened the movie. And, and if I remember it correctly, said, you have a great movie, but a terrible ending. So go redo it. Go redo the ending. Here's the budget to do it. So they, they completely rewrote it. They had to rebuild that set out in the desert and, uh, and redo everything that they had already done. And, um, I think there's a lot of speculation and worry when people hear that a scene had to be reshot mm -hmm. for, for any movie, right? But, but here's the thing. The, the producer, Rick Berman and the writers, Brannon and Rick, they all, they, expect this kind of thing to happen. You you cut together a movie, you show it to a test audience, and you also show it to the executives and the people who are going to be marketing this movie. Because not everything that you put down on paper necessarily translates well to film. So just like a writer has an editor say, no, clean up this, fix this, fix that before it goes to press. Same thing happens in a movie very often. And they were all very welcoming of that criticism to say, look, Go back and redo it. Here, here's one possible way to clean up and make the ending more exciting. So they were happy to do it. They were happy to go get that reshoot done. Can I ask a question? Was there ever a time, though, where we would just find Kirk dead? And I don't mean to sound terrible about it, but mm -hmm. I know the studios probably want to forget that Star Trek V happened. But it's a very mm -hmm. big deal that Kirk says at the beginning of Star Trek V, I knew I was fine because I've always known I'll die alone. And then when he finally dies, he's got somebody there with him. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. No, the, this was – those death scenes, if you go back and watch the uh, the rejected death scene, the end of that plays out in a similar way. Okay. Uh, uh, so he, he's still alive enough. And in fact, it's a little bit weird because Sauron's gun is pretty intimidating looking. Yeah. Um, and he, he shoots Kirk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but Kirk is still alive enough to have a uh, a last word. Okay. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it would sort of be a terrible way for Kirk to die if it's just like like an Anton Sugar thing. It's like, oh yeah, that happened off screen. Yeah, we didn't even see. Yeah, it. right. It's like, oh, right. Whoops. Right. Yeah, exactly. At the same time, it's always seemed weird to me that you know I've always known I'll die alone, and like you know you kind of want somebody to go like right before he dies. Hey, look, you got a friend. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> right. Can't die yet. Nope, nope. Gonna go off by yourself like a cat, like Morass. Right. Oh, good call, good call. All right, so uh, this is a movie, of course, so there are a lot of new special effects, but uh, but wow, they totally reused <laughs> the exact same shot of the Klingon bird of prey blowing up that they had just used in Star Trek VI. Um, and they also reused a shot of the Excelsior as the Enterprise B, but... But new CGI was created and a refresh of the Enterprise D model that had originally been shot for the TV show. They gave it a little more detail and uh, a new paint job in order to shoot it for this movie. Hey, I just mentioned the sailing ship, the Enterprise, and I thought this was a cool bit of trivia. So it's actually the sailing ship Lady Washington. Now, the original was built in 1787, primarily as a trading ship. She is long gone. 
But what we have here is a replica built in 1989 to celebrate the Washington State Centennial. Hmm. She's actually a passenger ship. You can go tour her and take passage on her, room for about 45 passengers. And she was built using traditional methods to be as historically accurate as possible. Now, guest stars. Of course, we have part of the original series cast. James Doohan as Scotty, Walter Koenig as Chekhov, and William Shatner as Kirk. Yeah, we are conspicuously missing a few. Those guys didn't want to do it. Uh, early drafts did have Spock and McCoy, and at one point, Leonard Nimoy was offered to direct, but he felt like there wasn't really anything for Spock to do. He wasn't integral to the story, and he wouldn't be directing a story that then therefore he had any investment in. So he declined, D. Kelly declined, and we have the uh, the cast members who did decide to come back. And Shatner did actually have influence in the script. Uh, that scene I mentioned earlier, the skydiving, that was his idea. The horse stuff, of course, was written in because Shatner is a big fan of horses. Whoopi Goldberg is back as Guinan. Uh, Tim Russ, uh, nope, not not Tuvok here, and uh, not that guy who was trying to take over the Enterprise and Starship Mine, and he's definitely not that guy from Spaceballs either. He's a lieutenant. Just leave it at that. Alan Rock is Captain Harriman. Of course, I'm referring to Alan Rock Cameron. Cameron Fry from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, Alan Rock has been in a ton of things. I remember him on Spin City. Uh, he's one of those actors who just shows up all the time. But but really, if there is one role that will cement him in the pop culture forever, it is Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Larissa and Bator are back, played here by Barbara March and Gwyneth Walsh, as they were in the TV series. The great Malcolm McDowell as Soren. Now, we've mentioned one of my favorite movies of his before, Time After Time, written by Nicholas Meyer and also starring David Warner. He was in a little seen English movie that I like called Gangster Number One. But of course, if you really want to see the early days of him playing a sociopath, his breakout role was that of Alex in 1971's A Clockwork Orange. His career spans honestly so much. If you don't know, just go look him up and start watching. All right, a couple more familiar faces. Uh, Ken, I know that you were excited about this. Uh, from John Oliver's Last Week Tonight, the catheter cowboy himself, Thomas Capacci. Uh, so great to see him again. It is. It is. Now, it, he's, we've mentioned him before because he's been in every Star Trek spinoff series, though though not yet on Discovery. Right. Still time. Right. And uh, Glenn Morshauer, who is totally that guy you saw in The Thing that time, uh, also on Voyager and Enterprise, though though no Deep Space Nine for him. Uh, but gosh, he was all over 24, and he has played a, a general or a soldier or a cop or something like it uh, pretty much all the time. He even goes by his own last name as General Morshauer in Transformers Dark of the Moon. And finally, Ken, it took no fewer than four cats to play Spot. You had Monster and Brandy, they were the A-team, and then you had Zoe and Spencer, who were the backups. November 1994. You could have bought a ticket to The Professional, or Interview with a Vampire, or the big screen adaptation of the video game, Double Dragon. Wisely, you skipped the video game, and came to see Star Trek. 
Something menacing is flying through space, tumbling end over end. Hard to make out. Wait, it's champagne. A bottle of fine champagne jettisoned to christen the USS Enterprise 1701B. In the captain's chair, Captain Harriman. At the helm, Demora Sulu, daughter of Captain Hikaru Sulu. And invited aboard are Pavel Chekhov, Montgomery Scott, and Captain James T. Kirk. And let me just say, this is an excellent idea. Nothing bad ever happens when Kirk is aboard for a training cruise. Actually, this isn't even a training cruise. It's a press junket. The captain says they're just going to swing out to the edge of the solar system, then back. But plans change when a distress call comes in. Two ships are caught in a sort of energy wave. And the 1701B is the only starship within range. Kirk is dying to take command, though just about everything they need, photon torpedoes, a tractor beam, a medical crew, everything is due next week. One of the trapped ships buckles and breaks apart while the Enterprise crew tries to figure out what course of action to take. After trying a couple of fruitless attempts, Harriman turns to Kirk for advice. They'll need to get in close to beam out the people on the second ship. Things go... okay... Scotty says the life signs of the people on the remaining ship are phasing in and out of our space-time continuum. Though there were 150 people aboard, Scotty was only able to beam out 47 before the second ship is destroyed. One of the survivors is barking mad, saying he has to go back. He has to go back! Also, hey, there's Guinan. That's weird. The Enterprise is trapped now in the energy wave. They devise a plan. Creative use of the deflector dish to simulate a torpedo blast should free the ship. Someone's going to have to go down to level 15 to re-rig it, though. Harriman is about to, but Kirk stops him, telling Harriman that his place is on the bridge of his ship. Kirk will take care of it. It works, though the 1701B has gotten the tar beaten out of it by the energy wave. In fact, a portion of the hull has been breached, though force fields have sealed the damaged area. On Deck 15, Harriman, Scotty, and Chekhov arrive to find no trace of Captain Kirk. Cut to the open sea and the HMS Enterprise, probably. Anyway, it's a ship called Enterprise. A sailing ship. It's 78 years after the buffeting of the bee, and the crew of the 1701D are up to hijinks on the high seas. Oh, sure, they could just promote wharf in a run-of-the-mill ceremony, but... Why do that when there's a holodeck and you can play dress-up? The newly pipped Lieutenant Commander Wharf is congratulated, then thrown in the water. Everybody thinks that's funny, except for Data, who is back to not understanding what humor is. Crusher tries to explain it to him and gets thrown in the water for her trouble. Suddenly, she doesn't understand what humor is. As all this goes on, Picard gets a personal message from Earth. The captain is obviously devastated by the message, though he tells Counselor Troy that he's fine. Picard leaves, but soon he's followed by the rest of the crew. Not because they're concerned about him. Rather, they're responding to an emergency. The Amargosa Observatory is under attack. When the ship arrives... Ooh, make that past tense. The station had been under attack. Only five of the 19 people aboard have survived, including a Dr. Soren who you may remember as the barking mad guy screaming about going back after being saved by the 1701B. 78 years ago. They also find a couple of dead Romulans who tore Amargosa Station apart looking for something. 
For the second time, Picard hands the whole Amargosa affair over to Riker, not even entertaining the notion of seeing Soren, who is demanding to see the captain. When he finally does see Soren, Picard is short with the doctor, same as he's been with Will. Seriously, something is up with Picard, though Soren will not be put off. He tells Picard that time is of the essence. He has to get back to the station in the next 12 hours, or years of work will be lost. You understand the horror of leaving things undone. You think you have all the time in the world. I need to get back to the station. Shaken, perhaps stirred, Picard says that he will do what he can. This conversation happens in 10 Ford, and yet somehow Guinan also saved by the 1701B 78 years ago, manages to not notice Soren before he slips away. Meanwhile, Data's recent run-in with comedy has him thinking it might be time to install his emotion chip. He may have grown as much as he can without it. Geordi agrees to install the chip, and it seems to be working. Data's not just getting sensory input anymore, he is feeling feelings based on those inputs. Even the things he hates, he loves, because he feels. Worf has figured out what the Romulans were looking for in the Amargosa station. Trilithium, an element the Romulans have been working with that theoretically could be used to kill a star. Weird that they'd be looking for that on a Federation station. Riker orders Geordi and Data to head over to check it out. Alone on the station, Data is sort of cracking up. His emotion chip is overloading his positronic relay. Believe it or not, though, they got bigger problems than that. They found the trilithium. It is in an armed torpedo. Okay, it's actually a solar probe, but it looks just like a torpedo. Also, oh, hello, Dr. Soren. He knocks Geordi unconscious as Data cowers in terror. Back aboard the Enterprise, we finally know what's bothering Picard. He tells Troy that his brother, Robert, and nephew, René, have died in the fire. And he breaks down. It's not just their loss. Picard has started feeling his mortality lately. He took comfort in knowing that, through René, his family would go on. This discussion interrupted by the Amargosa star. Going dark. Amargosa Station fired a solar probe at the star, and now this. Geordi and Data are still on the station. Riker and Worf go after them with no time to spare. A shockwave from the imploding star will hit the station and the Enterprise in a little over four minutes. But picking up the wayward officers is not as easy as just picking them up. Soren is still there, shooting at anyone who tries to stop him. Still playing the part of the cowardly lion, Data is no help. At the last second, Soren grabs Geordi and beams aboard a Klingon bird of prey controlled by the Duras sisters, Lursa and Bator. Worf, Riker, and Data get away just in time. The Enterprise just escapes the shockwave. While happy to not be dead, Soren is not happy overall with Lursa and Bator. Their carelessness got the attention of the Romulans, which nearly got him killed and attracted the attention of the Federation. They consider killing Soren, but if they do, he won't tell them how to make the star-killing weapon that they want to use to take control of the Klingon Empire. He demands that they set course for the Viridian system. Back on the Enterprise, we're learning a bit more about Soren. He's an Elarian, over 300 years old. 
He lost his family when his homeworld was destroyed by the Borg, not unlike, hey, it's Guinan. Both escaped their homeworld on the same ship, and both were saved by the daring do of the 1701B. And now Guinan clues Picard in about the energy ribbon. It's called the Nexus, and once inside it, it makes you very happy. A happiness that Guinan has worked hard to forget, and Soren has worked hard to get back to. She warns Picard, if you end up in the Nexus, you will not care about anything else. And you won't want to come back. Why would Soren want to destroy a star, though? Data and Picard head to stellar cartography to figure that out, though what Data really wants to do is be relieved of duty. He cannot handle his newfound emotions, but the emotion chip has fused itself in, and he can't remove it. Picard denies the android's request. Dealing with emotions is what humans do. Deal with yours. Also, they think they know why Soren wants to destroy a star. Doing so changes the gravitational forces in a given system. Alter one, and you alter the paths of things traveling through the system. Things like the Nexus. They plot courses, figure out that if Soren destroys the star in the Viridian system, the Nexus will hit a planet, Viridian 3. If Soren's on that planet, he'll be back in a state of bliss. But the destruction of the Viridian star will destroy every planet in that system, including Viridian 4, home to a pre-industrialized society of 230 million beings. Lay in a course, it's off to Viridian 3. Soren, meanwhile, has been making himself busy, tinkering with Geordi's visor and talking to the engineer about trilithium. Both the Enterprise and the Klingon ship get to Viridian 3 at about the same time. Soren gives the Klingons instructions on how to build a trilithium weapon, though he will not decode it for them until he is safely on the surface. Meanwhile, Picard makes contact with Lursa and Bator. He wants coordinates for Soren's location on the surface. The Klingons won't give him that, but they will accept a prisoner exchange. Picard for LaForge, then they'll beam Picard down to Soren for some reason. And they do, for some reason. Stopping Soren won't be easy, though. He's got a force field around the launch pad for the trilithium weapon aimed at the Viridian Star. Let's check in again on Lursa and Bator. They're watching the view screen. All that tinkering Soren was doing with Geordi's visor, he was rigging the visor to transmit what it sees back to the Klingon bird of prey. And when Geordi gets to engineering, they finally see what they're looking for. Hitting rewind and pause at just the right time, they see the frequency of the shield around the Enterprise. They remodulate their weapons. And Enterprise shields are useless. The recalibrated Klingon weapons are scoring hit after hit after hit. Klingon shields are holding up, but Riker and Data have a plan. Send an ionic pulse at the bird of prey. That should engage their cloaking device, which will automatically lower their shields. In the two-second transition between shielded and cloaked, the bird of prey will be defenseless. The plan works, and that is the last we will see of Lursa and Bator. Sadly, the Klingons have done their damage. The hammering on the Enterprise led to a warp core breach. They move everyone into the saucer section, separate the saucer section, and crash land it on Viridian 3. They're jostled, sure, but everyone seems to survive the crash landing. Then they all die anyway. Let's go back a few minutes. While Soren's structure on Viridian 3 is still shielded, Picard finds a weak point and weasels his way through it. 
He and Soren fight, but Soren is able to fire his star killer, which kills the star, steers the Nexus towards the planet, and sends out a shockwave that destroys every planet in the system, including the one on which the saucer section landed. Fade up inside the Nexus, where it's Christmas all year round. For Picard, he's got a wife, he's got kids, his nephew Renee's there. He's truly happy. Except for the part where he still knows somehow that it's not real. Guinan tells him it is real. Oh, it's not really real, but it is. And she's not. She's sort of an echo of the Guinan that had been in the Nexus. Picard says he wants to get out, though Guinan says she can't help him. But she thinks she knows someone who can. That someone? Captain James T. Kirk. Turns out he's not been dead these past 78 years. He's been caught in the Nexus. Well, caught isn't the right word. He's been happy in the Nexus. Chopping wood, riding horses, spending time with Antonia, who he's apparently in love with. But Picard tells him that none of this is real. And if you know James T. Kirk, that'll do it. He agrees to go back and help Picard defeat Soren and save the Enterprise. So how do they get back? This is the Nexus. It gives you what you want. So let's go back a few minutes. Sadly, the Klingons have done their damage. The hammering on the Enterprise led to a warp core breach. They move everyone into the saucer section, separate the saucer section, and crash land it on Viridian 3. They're jostled, sure, but everyone seems to survive the crash landing. Meanwhile, Soren is prepping the Starkiller for launch. But he's not facing one foe this time. He's facing two. Captain Picard and Captain James T. Kirk. And it's fights and cliffhangers and dangling from bridges. The captains almost don't stop Soren. Then they do. Picard has set the Starkiller to explode on the launch pad, taking Soren with it. The mission did not come without cost for the good guys, though. The scramble ends with Kirk's death though he does learn that he's completed his mission, saved millions of lives, made a difference. Back at the wreckage, Data says he's decided to keep his emotion chip. Having experienced over 200 emotions, he thinks he can control them now rather than letting his emotions control him. Then he finds Spot, and he's happy, and he starts crying, which he doesn't understand. But he totally gets emotions. Picard and Riker, meanwhile, are looking through Picard's ready room for a photo album, the one with pictures of Robert and René. Riker says the 1701D went before its time. But Picard remembers Soren's words to him earlier, that time is a predator that stalks us all our lives. Picard says he rather thinks of time as a companion who goes with us on our journey and reminds us to cherish every moment because they'll never come again. What we leave behind is not as important as how we've lived. And besides, he figures there will be another starship called Enterprise. The end. It's a movie. It's a movie. <laughs> it's, it's a big, big movie. And it's a movie that looks very different from the TV show. Yeah. All that light. I, I do think I, this is a pretty good-looking movie. And, and look, this 
purely subjective, mm-hmm. but uh, all that different light coming into the Enterprise, it's um, it's dramatic and it gives the very familiar ship a whole new look. I mean, they were wise about using their budget where they were able to reuse sets that they already had. They, they got some redress, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, 10-4 didn't change much. The observation lounge didn't change much. Bridge changed uh, a little bit, but it primarily changed through lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, those shots in 10 forward when they're so close to that outside light source, man. Now, do you suppose that has to do with working with an iconic director of photography who had an idea of how he might things want things to look yep. or is it because, okay, well, that's part of it though, right? Cause yep. I mean, here's the thing. Next gen was, was significantly brighter than this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't remember feeling like this movie was like dark in tone. I mean, there's lots of warm light, but I mean, it also just sort of crisscrosses across the screen in a way, right? Yeah. Watching yeah. it on TV, it felt a little dark to me. Now, it's also possible oh, that I'm just older, but you know, I wonder if it's like, <laughs> if it's bigger and brighter, if the darkness, you know, doesn't feel as dark somehow. It's still gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. It's just there were a couple of times I was like, I, I don't remember this being this dark. I remember it being dramatic, but I don't remember it being like literally like luminescently this dark interesting uh, a friend of mine hey adam shout out uh described it as being very painterly mm-hmm. and and the, the most painterly star trek film since the motion picture really and i, I think that's apt and, and i think what you're describing ken might also be the effect of this movie having been made in 1994 Assuming that people were going to watch it in a darkened theater on a 40-foot screen. Right, As opposed right. to movies now where, yeah, some people are going to see it on the screen. Some people are going to watch it on a phone <laughs> or on an iPad <laughs> or on their TV and right. all these other terrible ways to watch a movie. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there, there are certain things like um, – I'm thinking Citizen Kane. I'm thinking The Third Man. I mean, there are certain mm-hmm, black and white mm-hmm. films that don't – I mean, somehow they keep their high contrast to it. And again, I'm not complaining. It's just, I mean, you're right. This is how, more and more, this is how we watch movies now. I think as we record this, it is towards the end of January. I want to say the Thor movie came out in November and it's coming out like for realsies in like three weeks. So most people are going to be watching it from now on, uh, on on smaller screens and and they're going to have different, it was just something I noticed. I mean, it is beautiful. It just, it, it reads as darker these days than it did back in the day, I think. Because, again, 40-foot screen and all that jazz. Yeah, well, and think about that big change between the first season of Next Gen and then going into third, where you bring in Marvin Rush, and the whole lighting scheme of the show changed. Yeah. You know, so that was a pretty big jump, and now you've got another big jump. But, uh, yeah, a, a lot of that really due to the DP here, and, and what a what a job. Um but I I feel like somebody fell down on their job. Not everybody got the memo about the new uniforms. <laughs> they just, you know, like some of us will get new uniforms. Actually, what we see is a mix of um, old next-gen uniforms and then some of what they were already using on Deep Space Nine. And, and the real behind-the-scenes story here is way more interesting. So believe it or not, they actually had an all-new refreshed design of the next-gen costumes done by Bob Blackman, they actually made the new costumes. Mm -hmm. And then at the last minute, those were scrapped. Hmm. 
So what we have is this mix of like, yeah, well, we have these still from the TV production and we have these. So they're literally borrowing costumes from Deep Space Nine. Um, <laughs> I think Frakes was wearing one of Avery Brooks's costumes in this. Um, remember I mentioned those action figures before? Yes. All right. So the action figures were actually made using the redesigned costumes <laughs> that were never seen on screen. Hmm. Yeah. Because Playmates had to get in their orders. They had to see costumes and, and sketches and everything to just go ahead and design and make the toys. And they were based on the wrong designs because they ended up not using those in the actual movie. And those are still the toys that went on sale? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure <laughs> that's, enough. That's awesome. That's yeah. just awesome. I love stuff like that. Uh, speaking of people not getting memos... Uh, or maybe people not writing memos. Shouldn't Data and Jordy tell somebody if they're about to mess with Data's brain? <laughs> I'm not saying. Why start now? Yeah. I'm not saying Data <laughs> should have to ask permission. I mean, it's up to Data what he does with his body. But I mean, you should really give somebody a heads up, right? Like, yeah, listen, we're going to fundamentally change the way he thinks. Yeah. So maybe don't take him on a dangerous mission. Uh, well, ever again, let's be honest. But I mean, certainly not immediately after uh, after we change the way his brain works entirely. Mm -hmm. Could have told. Well, it's a good thing he told Jordy. Could have told the doctor. Jordy did it. Yeah, I, I know. I know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So J Jordy's in on it. Yeah. One of them. They're both senior officers. For crying out loud, one of them should have mentioned <laughs> to the captain. By the way. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Now, it, speaking of that emotion ship, good thing they didn't destroy it. Because remember, that was the plan and, and also got way bigger since the last time we saw it. That thing, they are feeding it well because yeah. it got way, way bigger. It's like a triple up in there. And, and I'm sure you notice that they have uh, the new comm badges, which mm -hmm. I think are cool. Now, do they just – I wonder how this works in the Star Trek universe. They're out on a mission. Uh, do they just replicate those? Like, does Starfleet send a memo? There, there's your memo again. Uh, with like replicator or 3D printer files attached and they just say, hey guys, we realize you're so far away, but look back home, we've been working on this new design and we think it looks cool. So just get rid of all the old ones and just yeah. replicate a thousand of these. I often think about that, like when they got back from, uh, you know, feeding Decker to V'ger. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and then, right. And they, yeah. and they get yeah. back into Starbase and it's like, wow, you guys are still wearing bell bottoms. Those are so last week. Mm, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and Kirk's like, it was literally last week. Right. Like, yeah. No, right. we're on yeah. the monster maroon now. We're doing a, we're doing a new thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got a strap. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, try to try to have that by the next movie. Will you? <laughs> and after that, they just, they're like, we don't care. Just wear your civilian casual. <laughs> just, just go to it. Yeah. Hey, uh, the windows on the Enterprise D break pretty easily. Do they? Uh, yeah, when, when they crashed. Um, it's just Dude, they glass. crashed from orbit. Are you kidding me? You think that's easy? Okay, well, well look, all right, two things. <laughs> two things. First of all, what, what is glass on the Enterprise made of? Uh, uh, probably transparent aluminum. Bingo. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, you, your ship is withstanding all kinds of extraordinary forces in space. I'm just saying, even if you, even if you can't afford, you blew all the budget on that nice carpeting on the Enterprise D. I'm just saying, like, it, at least get the windshield stuff that kind of crumbles instead of just sending shards of glass everywhere. And by the way, did you notice in that crash, rocks, again, just rocks falling from out of the ceiling all over them? 
Well, I assume that that was actually rocks being pushed up by the nose of the saucer section and then pouring into the window. You would assume that, but I'm saying the rocks are coming from everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) They're just going from all over the place. Um, The interesting thing about the Picard family scrapbook, uh, they put all kinds of stuff in there that you would never see. It is really cool. Like I, I wondered about the uh, the the space frames around yeah. the the photos in there. They were they were a little they were a little spacey. They but. were a little spacey. I was wondering, like, does Picard spend all this time doing that scrapbooking, or was that Robert's wife that sent that? I I, I think it was Robert's wife. Okay. But maybe maybe Picard's at it. Maybe Jean Luc is at it too. Honestly, I love the idea that Picard is looking for like you know iridescent tape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just the right kind that really complements the picture of those two people who are supposed to be his brother and his nephew, but I'm sorry, are not, because no. those were iconic actors. And I, I don't know, know who those two people are, but whatever. Uh, um, yeah. Speaking of Picard's family, I love his like recounting their history. Uh, yes, I remember hearing all about the Picard who fought at Trafalgar, uh, the Picard who won the Nobel Prize, uh, the yeah. Picard who killed all those Native Americans. Ah, actually, Ooh. we don't talk about him too much, yeah. do we? We don't yeah, talk about that Picard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. History is written by the victors, which in this case, <laughs> of course, is the ones who live. And uh, we can go ahead and forget about that one guy that uh, we just heard about six, seven weeks ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, our favorite fish... Livingston, Livingston Picard got a bigger fish tank, yeah. but uh, but uh, alas, poor Livingston. I I guess he's still tweeting, so I, okay, assume, yeah, he's, okay. I assume he's out there someplace. Okay. I was actually just going to say that somebody needs to fix Picard's TV because the aquarium channel seems to be busted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, very little of Livingston Picard in this movie, but you know what we got a great big heaping helping of. I'm going to guess Lieutenant Junior J. Bingo. Give this man a prize. Yeah. Yes. I will say watching it a couple of times, though, because I was really excited because I thought, oh, and, and we finally get to hear her speak. No, 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 no. 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 That, no. that would have pushed the budget. That would have been $36 million for this movie. Easily. She's walking by. She's moving her lips. But that sound was both before and after she was on the screen. So right. it's sort of made to look like she's kind of talking to somebody. Which has pretty much been her thing all the way through, right? Oh, it looks like she's talking to Riker. Yeah, but it only looks like she's talking to Riker. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, I found uh, one bit of uh, dialogue interesting between Data and Geordi. Oh, yes, Mm -hmm. there may be other interesting bits of dialogue, but one in particular I found interesting. Uh, Data says, I haven't been behaving like myself lately. And Geordi says, no, Data, you haven't. You've been behaving like a human. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of a lame human, like Wesley in season six, or like, you know, Barclay. Yeah, but, but hey, human, huh? Mm-hmm. Look at you grow. Look at you kick. There you go. Good job, Tin Man. <laughs> hey, what do you make of uh, Picard's fantasy sequence? Um, th- this, is, this is his fantasy? The, the, <laughs> the, the Dickensian Christmas Carol with yeah. just, yeah, okay. I was going to say, it's it's weird that he doesn't want to go back to France, where he really wants to live is on the set of As Time Goes By. Mm-hmm. I honestly thought that you might say in trivia that that was that set somehow, because, look, I love that show. I've watched As Time Goes By more than <laughs> once all the way through, and that looks a whole lot like Gene's living room. Yeah, no, it's literally, it's just a house in Pasadena. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Far out. That's, that's, that's kind of cool. Um, houses. So yeah, Kurt, oh, Kirk, Kirk is in the Nexus. Again, Kirk's, Kirk's fantasy. This is it just the Nexus will create whatever he wants. And right. that's that. that yeah, OK, that's. Yeah. Yeah. 
And mm-hmm. uh, what's weird is one of the things that makes Kirk realize that this is not the now mm-hmm. that he's living in the past is because he sold this house nine mm-hmm. years ago. And I'm thinking in exchange for what? Right. Because yeah. in Star Trek four, he was like, ah, they're still using money. Yeah. But he sold his house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did he for, get in return? Yeah, I, I know. Right. Uh, replicator rights. I, I don't or, know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Just the right to come back and you know live out his fantasy life. Apparently, there's there's no way to tell. He exchanged it for crates full of Kirk action figures wearing the orbital skydive <laughs> outfit that was never seen in yeah, the movie. That, that could be. Um, I will say one other thing. Uh, seen in the movie, actually, fantastic to see the Curlin Nascos. Mm-hmm. Uh, tossed aside like it was just nothing. They did it again. John and Ken are all excited about Lieutenant Junior J and Picard's fish and that guy you saw in that thing that time. But not one mention of the cameo by the computer. We will dive deep into Generations in a moment. But first... But first, a word from Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Blue Apron shops the way you would shop, which means for at least a few meals a week, you can skip the shopping. And I say they shop the way you would because they take great care with the ingredients. The meats are responsibly raised, the seafood is sustainably sourced, and the produce comes from farms that practice regenerative farming. Also, they don't want you to get bored. In a whole year, they will not repeat a recipe on you. So you won't be eating the same thing week after week after week. Now, all that sounds expensive, right? Well, not really. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers everything you need to make good home-cooked meals about which you can feel good. Meals like Whole30 approved seared steaks and warm lemon salsa verde with roasted broccoli and sweet potato... Can I get a mm noise? Mm-hmm. Whole, <laughs> Whole 30 approved chicken and kale orange salad with spicy tahini dressing. Mm. And spicy pork and Korean rice cakes with baby bok choy, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. Plus, if you're like me, you will learn a bit cooking with Blue Apron about new ingredients and new ways to prepare. For me, Blue Apron improved the foods that I made, whether it was out of one of their boxes or from my local store. And here's something else to feel good about. For eight weeks, ending on February 26, Blue Apron is teaming with Whole30 to bring you delicious recipes. The menu will feature two Whole30-approved recipes each week, like Mexican spice barramundi with avocado, togarashi chicken lettuce cups with avocado, and kale and sweet potato salad. Kickstart your new year with Blue Apron and Whole30. So... Here is what you do. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first order with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission log. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash mission log. Blue Apron. A better way to cook. And a huge thanks to Blue Apron for sponsoring this week's show. I got a lot of questions about the Nexus. Do you? Yeah, I'm going to deem you the Nexus expert. Maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe a Nexpert. 
Can, I was going to say, can we call me an expert? Yeah, we're going to call like you that. an expert. Yeah. Um, so as long as we're talking about the Nexus, uh, you think it's alive? Uh, pass. Okay. Do Do you think it's intelligent? Ooh, I'm going to have to give that question a miss. Okay. Uh, now, now, if if it was intelligent, uh, is it a constructed intelligence or is a naturally occurring phenomenon? I'm going to go with maybe. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Nexpert. Um, <laughs> now, interesting. Guinan says that, that uh, here's what I'm getting at. Like uh, the reactions that Guinan and Soren have to the Nexus are, I, I think, really fascinating. And, mm-hmm. and I think we we lose some of what would really be interesting in this movie by by getting kind of sidelined with some some other stuff going on. But um, Guinan says that she was literally ripped out of the Nexus. And she has tried to forget what it felt like to be in that because it would torture her if she kept thinking about what it was like to be there and, and think about going back. Now, she was on the ship when she was beamed out. So was that just like uh, in your estimation, because the, the, the timing of it didn't quite line up for me. She was on that uh, freight ship that that exploded. Mm-hmm. And then they were beaming those people out of there. So was there a moment there that maybe in real time she was for a split second in the Nexus, but that felt so good to her that the beaming out is what felt like ripped her out of that? Well, I mean, remember Scotty says that it looks like uh, the signatures are phasing in and out of our space-time continuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so- I, like, like what I wonder about is, so there were 150 people on board. A mm-hmm. suspicious-sounding 47 were saved, mm-hmm. uh, quote, yes. saved, end quote, by the Enterprise uh, 1701B. Mm-hmm. Are the other 103 people actually just sort of like, you know, chilling, maxing, living large Nexus. in the Nexus yeah. from yeah. then on? Or is the Nexus like... Is it like that? Is it like an eternal hit of heroin? Like yeah. if you if you exist someplace else, right? But you can also exist here. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you're going to feel like you're in that other place forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Think about Kirk. He was there 78 years, and he said the last thing he remembers is he was standing on the uh, on deck 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, the front end of the Enterprise got blown out, mm-hmm. and next thing he was out there chopping wood right before Picard got there. Yeah. So, I mean, there seems to be, you seem to exist almost in a state of um, uh, temporal suspension in a way, uh, where where no time has passed for you, even though all the time has passed. Right. It's a great kind of interesting timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly thing that, that could, I, I was thinking that for Guinan, just a split second of being mm-hmm. in there, but then, you know, phasing back into real time, real space, and then getting pulled out by uh, by the transporter. Uh, so it was an interesting description on her part to say that she was ripped out. But then to get out of the Nexus, you can do so if you will yourself out of there to go wherever and whenever you want. Now, to get into the Nexus, you actually have to physically come into contact with it. Not in a ship, though. That was the thing. They said, like, any ship that tries to approach it gets destroyed. Right, right. Which, I mean, I guess... Kind of who cares <laughs> if you think you live forever in the Nexus, then what are you, what are you worried yeah, well, about? Yeah, why not? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. That's yeah. that's weird to think about. Mm-hmm. I, I guess what I'm trying to figure out here is why would anyone live anywhere other than the Nexus? Mm-hmm. And, and okay, all right. And and as a follow up question, 
why not leave people there if they'd rather be there? Like if I met Soren and he's like, oh, the Nexus is awesome. Hey, Soren, here's a shuttle. Uh, yeah. By the way, the shuttle we didn't see at the the end of uh, that that deleted scene, the Hawking, kind of nice. Um, yeah. Look, the Enterprise just gives away shuttles like That's crazy. True. You know, yeah. cra- crazy Picard's shuttle giveaway sale. You throw them on a shuttle and say, "Look, the shuttle's not going to make it, but you will." So, See, because that's the thing. He will actually make it, right? As long as he comes into contact with the Nexus, because like he's just standing there on that rock, on that planet, and the Nexus comes through and actually picks up both him and Picard. We see them disappear. Yeah. So they physically go elsewhere. Yeah. So just, you know, just open the airlock. I say open the door and jump. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Because probably that'll work. And if it doesn't, you're going to know it didn't for like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then that's it. Yeah. Uh, I, oddly enough, John, and mm-hmm. I know it's mm-hmm. weird that I would ask questions, what with my being a expert? An expert, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, why don't we give you that badge, and I'll start posing questions as well. Okay, great. Because um, I wanted to talk about it both as a th- an in-universe thing and as a story device mm-hmm. for the show. Um, as a thing, it doesn't seem to work on what will actually make people happy as much as it works on assuaging regret. Fixing the things that we wish we had done, right? Yeah. Uh, see, also tapestry, except it never gets us to deciding whether what we've done is the right or wrong thing. It just, you know, it just is and does. Yeah. As a story device, it's interesting, but I wish we knew the why of it. All the questions you were asking, like, is it, you know, amusement gone awry? Is it a remnant of an omnipotent being? Is it, you know, deus ex machina? I mean... <sighs> We need this thing to be here so that we can say uh, what we want to say about the human condition, which, a la TOS, is that happiness is a sham. Ah, uh, yeah, there you go. There, I'm not sure, yeah. but it feels like that's where we're headed. I mean, it's interesting. When you ask the question, um, you know, why don't people just live in the Nexus all the time? Uh, I would like to play back for you your portions of this side <laughs> of paradise. <laughs> but we don't have to do that right now. No, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that that's the the tricky thing about this movie. Now, what was interesting was the to me the the motivations around the people who had come into contact with the Nexus. So, Guinan, look, Guinan is the wise old sage of Star Trek: The Next Generation, and for her to say it was amazing, it was incredible. I I tried to forget it. It was such a good experience because I felt like I couldn't go back there again. Now, she could. Theoretically, she could go back there again if she wanted to. But maybe for her, realizing that it was not, quote unquote, real, she she didn't want that. She she had the choice to not have that as her, her future life experience. I don't get the sense, actually, that anybody really has a choice about the Nexus. I mean... Soren is going around blowing up stars, or actually mm-hmm. imploding stars. It's not the easiest thing in the world to get to, it mm-hmm. sounds like. You kind of have to luck into it. So, I mean, to say that, you know, I mean, she says she tried for years to forget. My assumption is she also tried for years to figure out how she could get to it. And there are certain lines she wouldn't cross. I mean, Soren now has figured it out. Okay, all I need to do is disrupt the gravitational pull of entire solar systems uh, to get me back to my happiness. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. that might be a line that Guinan is not willing to cross. 
Mm. She also may, mm-hmm. she also may, I mean, this may sound terrible. She may just not have the skill set. I assume that Dr. Soren was Dr. Soren before he was in the Nexus. I assume he was Dr. Soren before the Borg destroyed his planet. I assume yeah, this is kind of the language that he speaks. Yeah, yeah. Guinan, while she does live in the future, is not, you know, an astrophysicist necessarily. I mean, she could be. There's no reason she couldn't be, but we've never heard that she is. <laughs> right. She's right. a darn fine bartender. She's a great fencer. She's mm-hmm. a listener. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's somebody who'd be like, oh, all I have to do is like, what, destroy a couple of stars and kill 230 million people? <laughs> I don't I don't feel like this is I don't feel like this is an accessible avenue for a lot of people. I mean, it's it's almost like you saying, oh, all you got to do is be rich. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, okay. Is that, is that all? Okay, I'll just do that. But, but remember, all you have to do to get out is just will yourself out. You can even be on a horse, and then a split second later, you're not on a horse. You're on a mountain. Well, yeah, but it only works that way. I'm on a boat. Mm-hmm. It actually only works, though, <laughs> if you're in the Nexus that you can will yourself out. I don't think being outside of the Nexus, you can will yourself in. And that's, that's some, that's, some then, like, yeah. that's like some Tony Robbins-style stuff right there. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's, yeah, that's higher level than me. So here's a question. Yeah. Um, why would the Nexus put Kirk anywhere besides the bridge of the 1701? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So uh, it, it's weird enough that Picard is having this, like, 19th century fantasy Christmas. Mm-hmm. But uh, Kirk in a house in the middle of nowhere chopping wood. And, and again, just proof that in the future nobody knows how to cook eggs. Um, see your Riker. See well, Kirk. He knows how to cook eggs. He just forgot about them while he was out chopping wood. Ugh. It, it, it See, takes, the thing is, it though, takes a minute. It takes sixty seconds to cook eggs, and he forgot. He's okay. like, "I'm going to well, put this here and go outside and chop wood." There's well, there there are a couple things really quickly. Like, first of all, I think we find out. All right, let me back up a tiny bit. I was talking this over with a friend of mine earlier this week, and the supposition came up that there is what you think will make you happy. And then what actually makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when Kirk is in his right mind, he thinks the thing that makes him happiest is being captain of a starship. Mm-hmm. And I put right in quotes there. When he's in his right mind, Kirk thinks the thing that makes him happiest is being captain of a starship. But when a thing that can plug straight into his pleasure center of his brain says, this is what really makes you happy, it's chopping wood, it's riding horses, it's being with the latest love of his life. So either Kirk is driven to the point of delusion, an argument that we can take back to this side of paradise, mm. or the Nexus is on the blink. I mean, there, there yeah, are two possibilities yeah. there. Now, yeah. I do also, though, when you bring up the thing about the eggs, when, when the whole thing happens on board the 1701B, Kirk is like chomping at the bit or champing at the bit uh, to, to take the captain's chair. He sees mm-hmm. everything that Harriman's doing wrong and he wants to fix it. He wants to get in there and he wants to fix it. But he, mm-hmm. he lets decorum, you know, uh, rule and he waits for Harriman to say, do you have any ideas? And then, of course, Kirk's got a million of them. And so then Harriman says, I'm going to go down to 15. I'm going to fix this. And Kirk says, no, your place is on the bridge. I'm going to go. Did Kirk go because Harriman's place was on the bridge or because he didn't trust anybody else to take care of things because he always has to do stuff? And this would explain the burning eggs because the thing that makes Kirk happiest, possibly, is not chopping wood. It's not cooking eggs. It's fixing things that other people have screwed up or, or being the <laughs> hero, right? So, the, so he comes back in from burning and the eggs are burning. Uh, I'll make this better. Uh, that's what Kirk does. He, he makes things better as he sees them. 
We call it freedom. You'll like it a lot. Whether you will or not, that's a whole other thing. Kirk has ideas right, about right. how things will go. And so Kirk's greatest joy might actually be fixing stuff the way he running the universe the way he wants it to run. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think the uh, doing that in this little farmhouse and chopping wood is probably a poor expression of it. Uh, because, yes, a, a, as you posed at the beginning of that, why would he be anywhere other than the bridge of a starship? We, we have only ever seen Kirk in his later years go on and on about learning to maintain his command of a starship. His best friends tell him go keep your command yeah. <laughs> over and over again. So, yeah. Well, Kirk is allergic to happiness. We know this. Mm-hmm. He's allergic to being happy. If there's work to be done, what, what, does he, what does he want to know at the end? Did I make a difference? That's mm-hmm. what he wants. He dies happy knowing that he chose making a difference over being happy, which, I mean, then, you know, gets you into sort of a, a chasing your tail thing of like, well, making a difference makes him happy, but he can never stop and be happy because he's too busy trying to make a difference, which makes him happy, but he can never stop and enjoy the happiness because he's too busy trying to make a difference. Mm-hmm. It just goes round and round and round at that point. I did actually have another question about uh, whether Kirk's allergy to retirement Mm-hmm. has to do with actually having to face, you know, what he's done in his past. I mean, it's really interesting to me yeah. that one of the happiest days of his life, he never actually gets to see Antonia. He's all over the whole thought of Antonia. He's like, oh, I'm making breakfast for Antonia, and I'm going to go riding with Antonia, and I'm going to march into that bedroom and do everything the way I'm supposed to. But he goes to the bedroom door, and he's actually still chasing Antonia. Now he has to get on a horse and chase Antonia. And when he finally, theoretically, is going to be someplace where he can see her and get to her, I mean, one of the happiest days of his life is the one where he almost meets her. <laughs> but he doesn't, yeah, right? Right. right? Um, I wonder if, if Kirk doesn't like the idea of retirement because then he has to face every decision he's made before. Like David asked in Star Trek II, you've never really faced death, have you? Hmm. I mean, for hmm. Kirk, hmm. if you ain't working, you ain't living. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And what's weird is, what's weird and sad, I yeah. sort of get that because I think, so as I said earlier, as we record this, it's towards the end of January. I believe my last full day with absolutely zero work was Christmas. Yeah. I've always got to yeah. be doing something, right. just a little bit of something, just a little bit of something. Right. Um, you know, even on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, I worked on those days, which means I did not drink nearly enough on New Year's Eve. Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm Kirk, apparently. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, right. bumming me out a tiny bit. Yeah. Um, nah, but you know, he, he lives forever in the Nexus anyway, so... That's good. Yeah. No, look, I, I, from a stylistic point of view, I, I'm in agreement with everything you're saying here because, uh, look, the, the very fact that they don't introduce you to Antonia, you know, the, the closest thing you get to seeing her is that kind of silhouetted image of her on a horse, you know, but we never actually get to have a scene between Kirk and Antonia. And, and that's it, – it's signaling to the audience that this – person as an actual person is not nearly as important as the idea of Kirk uh, just trying to avoid, as you say, his his decisions that he's made. Do you suppose um, that's why they didn't make her Carol Marcus? Or do you think they just didn't even consider Carol Marcus? I, I, if they considered her at all, I think you would, they would have to immediately reject the idea of having Carol Marcus. Oh, I don't mean as an actress. I don't mean have her show up. Just I no, mean, if I know, she's gonna, if I know. she's going to be the fantasy girl, yeah. why not be the? I mean, finally taking care of his regrets, which seems to be what this whole thing is about. I assume that having 
gone dashing across the galaxy while the woman that he theoretically loved was raising the child he didn't know about would mm-hmm. would sort of you know land in the regret category at least on some level mm-hmm. yeah no i i think they had to separate all of that because then the audience comes to it with all these preconceived ideas of yeah we who, still never see her though so i mean at least why not make it a character that we ah eh, whatever yeah oh. <laughs> what do you make of uh picard's whole you know I understand being torn up about the death of a family member, but the whole thing about Renee and, um, you know, the whole uh, closest thing I would ever have to a son. He's never really been into that, has he? Except for that one time that he thought he had one for five minutes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, 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 that doesn't sound like Picard at all. Let me, let me ask you a question, if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. You're an only child, right? Yeah. Uh, are you the last of the champion line? Far as you know. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, from 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 my part of the family, yes. Okay. The, there are other, yeah. But yes. There are other champions, though? Uh, from different parts of the family, not my direct line. Okay. And I yeah. do have to ask, I'm almost required to by law, do you all get together and sing We Are the Champions? Uh, uh, please, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you really should. You I really know. should. And if you could make that happen at Vegas, that'd be fantastic. When when that forty five came out, the 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 double A side of uh, We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions, I probably got five copies of that. Uh, I would imagine. I yeah. yeah, yeah, which is kind of funny. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> that's fantastic. So yeah. you did you ever have a whole end of the line thing, a concern about that, a worry about that? That you know I, either this yeah. is on your shoulders or or you didn't feel like it was a thing that you needed to worry about. But either way, buck stops here. Yes. Yeah. Okay. No, a, a little bit, a, a little bit of a concern, a little bit of like, wow, well, that that's a cool name. Uh, maybe I should keep that going a little bit. But no, but it, it, it at a certain point, it stopped being a real concern for me, a, a realistic concern for me. It was a sort of a, a theoretical concern, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm. I'm in my head. I'm in my life. I'm doing my thing. I'm. I'm not thinking about, you know, what what would be, should I choose to go on a different path and and make a whole lot of other champions to come into the world. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, we've never seen Picard worry about this, but we've never had to see Picard worry about it because he thought it was taken care of. I. Well, I've always heard Picard say that he doesn't like kids. I. You know. <laughs> we've. We've seen that from the beginning. We heard that in the first couple of seasons, yeah. But then we also we did also see him take to uh, that kid that he thought was his son. I mean, we did. I mean, there is there is a bit of a paternal thing in Picard. There could mm-hmm. be. I mean, he's decided that that's not a big deal. But the question is, would he have decided that was a big deal had there been no Renee? I mm-hmm. I will tell you, um, I have um, eighteen, nineteen year old nephew, and you can tell how close we are because I'm not sure how old he is exactly. But 18 or 19 years ago, he took the weight of the world off my shoulders mm-hmm. because I thought it was either going to be me or my cousin that was going to have to do something about yeah, making sure that things went forward. And now it's up to my nephew, which is fantastic. It, it, was, yeah, seriously, yeah. it was seriously a worry that I had. And you wouldn't know that talking to me because it, this was taken care of by somebody else having a kid whose last name is the same as mine. Mm-hmm. Right. The line, either it's going to go forward or it's going to stop with the next generation. I don't know which, but it's no longer up to me. So yeah. on the one hand, I'm kind of like, well, that's a weird thing for Picard to be concerned about. And then I think, oh, yeah. I remember when you were however old I was back then, 
very early 30s, and, and it was like seriously weighing on my mind. And then they said, it's a boy. And I was like, wow, that's so awesome. Yeah, thanks. That'll uh, that'll haunt me as I go to bed tonight. Oh, don't the let show, it. So. It'll be fine. <laughs> Just, you know, I, the reason I asked if, if you had dealt with this before is because, you know, you've dealt with this before. So don't worry. Yeah, about no, it. I, I, I had. And, and then it sort of ceased to be a thing. Right. So, yeah. So go back yeah. to that. Will yourself into the nexus, my friend. Will yourself into the mm, nexus. Thank you. Thank you. As I bring up one final topic. Mm-hmm. I joked in the last segment that it was great to see the Curlin Nace Coast just tossed aside like it was nothing. Yep. I want to come back to that for a second, though. Uh, the Curlin Nace Coast was a big being made up or, you know, uh, filled with and fueled by a bunch of smaller beings, right? Mm-hmm. That was the thing about the Curlin Nace Coast. I was so into that because it was just such a great, like, visual representation of, mm-hmm. of the Enterprise, Mm-hmm. And and of the way society ought to work and the way community ought to work. And um, we find it here and it gets tossed aside, literally tossed aside, not tossed. He puts it down, but he's not coming mm-hmm. back for it. Mm-hmm. Um, Picard, one of the two captains slash heroes of this movie, is tearing apart what's left of his ready room, looking not for something that'll speak to their sense of community, but to his history and what he's lost. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. And I'm sure he wasn't thinking that, and I doubt even the writers were thinking that. But, you know, had he thrown aside some mask or, like, the flute from the inner light, maybe mm-hmm. something that was very individual for something else that was very individual, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a thing that even crossed my mind. It would have just been like, oh, look, he's got the thing from the thing, but he's throwing it away, so who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, symbolically, though, could one argue that he's ditching symbols of community for symbols of self? I think you can make that argument. However, I think that they very consciously started off this movie with a different Picard. A Picard who had been emotionally compromised, as Star Trek likes to say, mm-hmm. by what just happened in his immediate family. We know that there's uh, there's some difficult baggage from that family. Go back to season four, family. Family, uh-huh. yes. Family, that was the one for people who don't remember, uh, with Picard's family. Yes, good, good, uh, good description there. I believe they ran it like that in TV Guide. Um, <laughs> so I think I can easily give Picard a pass uh, for that. H- however, I-, I also like to think that of all those shuttles that keep buzzing around the, the wrecked hull, uh, primary hull of the Enterprise, that, that at some point one of those shuttles has come back and say, hey, we, we should give this a second pass. Did anybody, seriously, did anybody leave anything on board? that we need to take home because now's now's actually the last call with the enterprise in pieces and captain kirk dead wow what is left to take from generations Popcorn's been eaten, John. The soda's been slurped. The raisinets are no more. The lights are coming up. Movie's over. The ushers are ushing, as they want to do. It's time for us now to settle on the messages, morals, and meanings of this episode of Mission Log, uh, based on a movie, and deciding for ourselves whether the whole thing holds up. Star Trek Generations. John, does this movie hold up as far as you're concerned? 
I remember liking this movie when it came out, uh, primarily because there was so much anticipation. Um, and then I remember not liking it so much in later years. Uh, it, it, it kind of took on this, I would say, popularly with Star Trek fans. And, and like if you go to YouTube and you can find all kinds of videos that tear apart this movie to just point out every single thing that's wrong with it. Um, but fortunately for this show, you know, we get to go back and kind of try to watch things with fresh eyes. And this time around, I kept finding moments, many, many moments that I truly liked. And I loved seeing next gen be something bigger than what's on my TV. You know, we mentioned the colors, the action, the presence of more than 10 people on the Enterprise. <laughs> you know? <laughs> 10 forward was hopping. Yeah, right, right. And and for us doing what we have just done, which is to go through every episode of Next Gen every week and, and many times watching those episodes several times over, um, that's just sort of burned in your brain. So then seeing this, it's like, wow, there's this whole new – language to the way that Star Trek is being told, or specifically the way that, that this cast story is being told. Um, now, ultimately, he, here's the problem. I have to ask myself if having Kirk in this movie helps or hurts. And for all the moments that I liked and all the moments uh, of, of next gen sort of turned up to 11 that I liked, um, to me, that hurt the movie. Hmm. Now, look, I, I'll come right out and say it. The TOS cast doesn't look good here. And and they look out of place. And more importantly than, than just that sort of jarring visual, because we had this sign-off with them. We had that beautiful, literally, they signed off on Star Trek VI, right? Mm -hmm. More important than any of that, Kirk's death had no emotional resonance with me. Um, it's totally the opposite of Spock's death, which always has and always will get to me no matter how many times I watch The Wrath of Khan. Mm -hmm. In this movie, Kirk was already dead for 78 years, you know, and, and we barely got to see the repercussions of that with the people in that part of the timeline when, when he died or at least disappeared and they thought he was dead. Fast forward 78 years into the Nexus, Picard doesn't know Kirk. He knows of him. It's this historical figure. And and furthermore, to me in the audience, and, and here's the problem with being a Star Trek fan and playing the home game, it, it just feels like one more bump in the story. So the original series at this point, and, and Star Trek in general, had grown so big so universal as part of the pop culture and and now in a new incarnation with this that it didn't really feel like we were losing kirk not like the way in 1982 it felt like we were losing spock it it, it felt like oh, okay well well here's a gimmick to bring back this actor again and by the way we'll see shatner again at the next convention and we'll hear about how kirk comes back in a book that I haven't read yet. So it just didn't have the weight that I know they wanted it to have. And it, there was a little bit of it that, that I kept watching this thinking all the really interesting threads of this story 
aren't being explored mm-hmm. because we're taking time following Kirk and the adventures of Kirk and Picard. And to me, what was really interesting here was um, what is driving this madman to the point of obsession? What is so great about the Nexus that makes people want to go there and stay there and kill other people to get there? And are we going to have another long conversation about this side of paradise? If they had taken this as sort of a TNG bookend to this side of paradise and really had that conversation and really planted some good arguments on both sides of the equation, mm-hmm. that would have been something. It really would have. But we didn't get that movie. We, we didn't get the deep dive into, into the philosophy of what was going on. Instead, we got the gimmick. So, look, I, I'll say this. This movie actually holds up way better than I thought it would. And if I just look at it as an extension of Next Generation... It holds up. Mm-hmm. It, it, it actually does. But the problem is they have all these moments in it that that rip me out of it, not unlike ripping Guinan out of the Nexus. <laughs> so so I, I give it a pass. I'm going to say it holds up. It's just that it holds up not for the reasons that I think they, and when I say they, I mean not just the producers, writers, but the Paramount executives at the time, it doesn't hold up for the reasons that they wanted it to hold up. Mm-hmm. They wanted it to hold up as the ultimate passing of the torch, the ultimate way to bring together Star Trek fans and, and the, the ultimate celebration of Star Trek. And to me, it, it, it really wasn't that. But it was a cool new way to see Next Gen. So I, I'll give them that. And, and for that, it holds up for me. How about you, sir? Well, we talked a lot uh, last week about fan service, mm-hmm. and that's what Kirk felt like to me here. Um, yeah. It's interesting you used the term, uh, the passing of the torch. I actually had a note in here. There is a terrible true story about the transition from Johnny Carson to Jay Leno when oh, Leno yeah, took over The Tonight yeah. Show. Uh, Leno's producer wanted Carson to literally hand an Olympic-style torch to Leno on Leno's first night, uh, which was a horrible idea. And thankfully, it was shot down. And Generations sort of seems to want to do that for the Star Trek movies, uh, handing over from one crew to another. Um, I can sort of understand why, because even today, I've talked to people who really stopped watching Star Trek after TOS. They're not overly familiar with Next Gen, because uh, mm-hmm. Kirk, that was their man. And yeah, the rest mm-hmm. of it's just silly, and they don't pay any attention, right? So uh, it's possible that, you know, uh, Paramount, the movie studio, wanted to get people in who wouldn't have gone to see a next gen movie. But they see Kirk because ah, Kirk, he's my guy. And there and, you know, mm-hmm. there they are. And that was my Star Trek and all that stuff. Um, the problem is that sort of negates the seven years that TNG more than held its own on TV. That said, there are moments in here, even with the old crew, that I absolutely love. When Kirk says, call me Jim. <laughs> right. That yeah. felt like Kirk to me. Now, I didn't like how, like, oh, he's going to let me call him Jim seemed to be the look on Picard's face because Picard's like, I'm not, I don't care. <laughs> right? I mean, because it, it's <laughs> right. been 78 yeah. years and half the time they don't even seem to remember who James T. Kirk was. Right. But mm. so much of this movie felt like Shatner. And that moment that call me Jim felt like Kirk to me. Yep. Yep. Do I wish they had done something different? Eh, maybe. But, I mean, it's not offensive, honestly, especially since, 
especially since they dropped the orbital skydiving bit from the movie, because <laughs> that would have just been the beginning of Star Trek V again, right? Yeah. I mean, they've done that yeah. now. They've had Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Okay, good question. Next question. Why is he skydiving at the beginning of a movie now yeah, from orbit? Mm-hmm. Whatever. There are things I like about this a lot. I love the train seal aspect of Kirk on 1701B. And it's a very it's a very paparazzi. It's a very of-the-moment sort of joke. We've never gotten the impression that lots of people are sitting at home watching TV. And that those were very much TV crews, like, you know, yeah. trying to trying yeah. to celebrity ogle or ogle or oogle or whichever. But it was still kind of funny. Like when he says, take us out, and they all clap. I mean, he's he's just a shadow of what he was <laughs> at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Catheter Cowboy, Glenn Morshauer, Tuvok, Cameron Fry. Uh, <laughs> the bridge of the 1701B is like going to a really great after party full of people who you either think you saw on TV one time or who you maybe went to high school with. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just like a bunch of really fun, like pop culture stuff in here. There are things I don't like. Uh, actual kind of plot holes. Why would Lursa and Bator actually beam Picard to the surface? <laughs> I know, right? Why would he think they were going to? And then why would they do it? Why not just you know yeah. make an exchange and then fly off with them? Because well, one of them says to the other one, I can never remember which is which. One of them says to the other, uh, you know, the captain would be a better uh, would be a better um, uh, a better prisoner than LaForge. So what we'll do is we'll get him and then we'll send him to a planet. <laughs> <laughs> that makes no sense at all. Uh, no, also, no, if no. if Picard can go any place, any time, just willing himself to do so, why go to five minutes before the disaster you're trying to avert? Yeah, eh, yeah. Let's, so let's go fifteen. Yeah. Let's go an hour. Let's go three weeks. Mm-hmm. Let's let's mm-hmm. let's find many ways to avert this, not just you know starting over again. Now, of course, had they failed, they just would have gone back to the Nexus and they could have just done it again, and it'd be like a high tech Groundhog Day. Uh, Brandon and Ron had addressed that at one point in an interview much later on, and um, I, I still don't buy the answer. <laughs> but they, they they basically said like, yeah, you know, we we get it that 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 could have happened. You yeah, could have gone back earlier and earlier and earlier, but we didn't do that. It serves the story. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's really what it is. It's not dramatic tension. If Picard, you know. If his captain's like, Captain's log supplemental. Well, I went through time again and nobody knows mm-hmm. about it, but I did yep. stop a whole system from being destroyed. That's usually a bad way to end an episode, and it's a really bad way to end a blockbuster movie. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. all of that said, I do remember liking this movie because it was big, like you said, because it was new, mm-hmm. like you said. Stellar cartography is honestly not as cool as I remember it being the first time I saw it, but my friends and I talked about stellar cartography forever after that Mm. movie because it was such a new and neat and big thing. And yes, you could do it on the holodeck, but it was neat that we had that big room that did that whole thing. It was gorgeous. And I can honestly still tap that excitement. Having just watched Seven Years of TNG, it is neat to see them on the high seas, you know, with new sets Mm -hmm. and new lighting. It's not the best Star Trek movie, but it is far from the worst Star Trek movie. And honestly, I think it's okay if you just want to watch a movie. And if you're a Star Trek fan, I mean, you still get why. It is, like I said, at the end of all good things. It's fan service, and I'm a fan. And yeah, it makes me miss the old Kirk, or the young Kirk, excuse me. It makes me miss those characters when they were younger, but it's never a bad thing to see them on the screen. 
honestly. Yeah, I wish I wish Shatner had been a little bit more Kirk and a little bit less Shatner. Yeah. But but we actually honestly a couple of times got to see Kirk on screen again, and that's not uh, that's not the worst thing. None of that's message though. Talk to me about messages because I I feel like uh, we could wrap this up in thirty seconds. Well, that's the thing. I feel like there's a lot to discuss with this movie, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of message to discuss with this movie. Yeah. I think the messages are, are kind of secondary here. Um, you know, happiness can't come at the expense of others. Okay. Uh, you know, but but yeah, we, we know that, whether it's uh, blowing up a star <laughs> for your own purposes. Right. Or, or maybe scale that down a little bit, you know. Yeah. Um, blowing up a planet, you mean. Or like a moon, like a moon, okay. you know? Yeah. I'd be, yeah. We should yeah. discuss at some point where you think that line is, because, you know, one of us may be mad scientist one day. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get it in writing. I need, I need to yeah. know when to tell you, hey, 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 champion. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when it was just a moon? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and like I said, they, they stopped short of leaving you with an interesting conundrum or or a conversation or something meaty to really chew on about the choice to live in this place where everything was okay and and your fantasies were real and you could apparently sort of live forever um they they didn't explore that so we didn't get to wrestle with those ideas but i guess ultimately the movie falls down on the side of saying um don't live your life in a fantasy world you have to live in what is real which is kind of the the same message of this side of paradise um and and clearly that is a uh, a story which is up for debate yeah it's great to see them hitting the same story like you know 30 years later though or hitting the same theme, I suppose, 30 mm-hmm. years later. Yeah, so what, what else? Well, here's what's weird. Um, we pretty much decided that the, that the message for all good things was be in the now, or that was one of the messages mm-hmm. anyway. And mm-hmm. that's pretty much the message of this movie, too. Yeah. It seems to me. Like, you know, I mean, Picard says the whole thing. It's not about what you leave behind, but, you know, how you lived. I'm sorry, it's not. Which one is it? I can't remember. Basically, he thought, oh, yeah, I was going to go see them next month, and, and now they're gone, and I never will. And I, I really felt like the, about the only message I could pull out was uh, was sort of a be in the now thing, although maybe that's just a hangover from all good things. Well, no, but, you know, it's a little bit of a – maybe Picard is at peace at the end. You know, mm-hmm. he, He's gone through this adventure, but he's lost family. He's lost his ship. There's a real melancholy about that at the end, but but then he he's the one who sort of he dusts off the book. He's with his old friend again, Riker, and and they just sort of beam up, and he's like, "Yeah, it's not about the ship, you know. It, it's not about this stuff. So let's let's move on to the next." Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You know, we got a growing list of podcasts that we would like for you to check out. But how? How, I hear you ask. Well, it's easy. Podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to help support this show, we would certainly appreciate that. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is how to do it. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, 
Star Trek First Contact. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. If we go, buy the book, years will feel like days, as we wait for the next Star Trek film. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.